Welcome to the Local Climate Solutions Podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with local leaders in Island County, Washington, who are engaged in helping to reverse climate change and build community resilience. This podcast brings the topic of climate change down to a community level so that people feel more connected, engaged, and empowered. My guest today is Jake Stewart. Jake has over 15 years experience in localized sustainable systems, including renewable energy, climate adaptation, appropriate technology, and sustainable food security. He has worked in the private, nonprofit, and public sectors. He previously worked at Austin Energy, leading the Mayor's Climate Protection Program and Smart Grid Development. Jake has been deeply involved with integrated sustainable systems development. He is currently focused on climate adaptation and sustainable farmstead integration and education. He and his wife, Asia, own a 25-acre farm on Whidbey Island, where they're building an integrated family farmstead, deploying regenerative agriculture innovation, sustainable food forest development, and hands-on educational workshops. Also today, I have podcast support from my daughter, Amanda Delmeda. Amanda is in her fourth year of medical school, and has her own podcast titled Medicine Explained. She asked to join because she is very interested in the intersection between environmental and human health. Now, on to our conversation with Jake. Hi, Jake. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We're really excited to learn more about your Sweetwater Farm and regenerative agriculture. Great. Well, thanks for hosting me. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, You have an amazing background. If you wouldn't mind telling us how you found your way to Whidbey Island and into the world of sustainable farming and education. Well, I'll attempt to do a short version of that. I have an academic background in ecology and biology and uh, effectively my PhD dissertation project turned into um, a small business around renewable fuels, which then led me into sustainability programming on an international level. And uh, at some point I found myself traveling around the world working on sustainability projects and felt called to get closer to the ground, uh, almost to the scale of a farmstead. Um, I met my wife about 10 years ago and she was in a similar place. We were in Austin, Texas, where we hail from, and I was running the climate protection program and some urban agriculture type stuff. And we both felt felt the same kind of calling. So we sold everything we owned, bought a travel trailer, and took a sabbatical. And that sabbatical involved traveling about the country and looking at various models Uh, and in pursuit of our own farm, which we did not know specifically where that would be. Uh, We ran a small farm uh, outside of Austin and the well went dry, literally, uh, during a drought. So it was a a huge wake up call. Given my background in climate modeling, (laughs) it was also just a real big reality check. So I also sort of, uh, say that we, in some ways, our climate, uh, it was a climate migration. We wouldn't call ourselves climate refugees, but in a way, uh, we needed to get to water. And models showed 
where the highest likelihood of that would be in the long term. I've always been drawn to the Northwest. So we made our way, stopped in Northern California. I worked at the organic farm school there out of uh, near uh, Santa Rosa, California. Mm -hmm. And no hyperbole, the water well went dry there in a, uh, a drought uh, of 2013, I believe, or 2014. Uh, at the organic farm school. And I was, you know, we just looked at each other and said, if this isn't a sign, you know, I don't know. So we upped and moved from there and we just kept going north. And then they, they stay on Whidbey Island. You don't find the island, it finds you, which sounds a little woo woo, but we find that to be true. That's exactly what happened. It was when we stopped looking, you know, the real estate boom and land, we took a break from looking and went to go camp on this island <laughs> and we found uh, an old farm fixer upper and we made an offer the day that we visited and never left as a very chopped up version of the story but that's how we ended up here so we've been here since 2000 uh, early 2015 and it's a 24 acre farm that we've put together we put together two two adjacent parcels and here we are wow fascinating journey I, I think amanda would love to see your farm and i've been lucky enough to get a personal tour so it's going to be hard i'm sure but for our listeners would you mind trying to describe some of the key aspects of your farm give us a a visual picture of it if you can sure uh man what a great question to try to put a narrative to that i i would describe it as a integrated agroforestry regenerative agriculture experiment in a way we're not doing anything that is necessarily novel on its own we're borrowing from folks that are doing good work all over but we're trying to integrate and having both of us having some business backgrounds, we wanted to make it sustainable on all fronts. You know, um, farming can be sort of an, an alluring concept and it can get a little starry eyed for folks. And I thought it was important to integrate multiple aspects of a model that could sustain itself long terms not only ecologically but also financially so that you know you can it's very difficult i'm sure we all know folks that are making their mortgage by selling tomatoes and that or whatever fill in the blank and that is my hats off to it but it takes the joy out of growing food and uh, i wanted we wanted a model that relieved some of the pressure on that and um so we share uh, some of the land with, we do farm stays, uh, sort of try to share the experience of a regenerative farm, which I think there's a, a, a longing for right now. People want to, uh, so some of that agro-tourism feeds a lot of the projects that we do. We also do some, have some uh, rentals on the property to, for affordable housing. Uh, and then the agricultural component is, uh, you know, we have a, a partially forested 
uh, acreage. So the idea is to work with the forest to grow food. So we integrate into the understory and then we have some areas that are more open that are more focused for annuals uh, while planting in perennials with the forest system. So it's a long answer to say, at least my background in sustainability is about closing loops and creating, when we see an open loop, solving the problem in a way that we can generate as much of it as possible in a healthy, you know, agroforestry system. Uh, that takes time. We we're in year coming into year seven now, and I'd say we're we're just sort of you know that every farm will tell you year six and seven is really where you start to feel that your feet on the ground. I'd say that's very true for us. We feel a lot of the pieces kind of clicking together now. All those early investments in soil, and systems, and composting, and water rain rainwater catchment and um, perennial plantings start to and we also do no-till so everything takes longer and is more labor intensive but I'm happy to say that that we're really starting to feel that work yield uh, this year particularly as a got a farm stand that's opening that's been doing wonderful and also an opportunity to help feed our community in a way that really brings us joy and that having that outward facing component, at least for the food has been um, really nice because we've just been kind of working in our introverted way on all these projects and sharing, sharing the experience, but now just being able to share uh, food and the story as well. Uh, like you've picked up on a big part of it is, is the story. And I, I read somewhere you know, I've done a lot of work kind of, I don't know that I'd call it activist work, but it was definitely cause driven, uh, whether it was climate or sustainability. And a lot of that was very kind of lean forward type stuff. And uh, even my entrepreneurial stuff was driven around development and innovation and that. And this quote is, you know, if you want to change the world, leave the gate to your garden open and allow people to walk around on their own volition. I've found a lot of truth and value in that. And uh, I think that particularly on the heels of this pandemic, people are yearning for connection to things and providing people just space. That's why, you know, these farm stays are so uh, meaningful to us as well. It's just having that space and time to experience it. We go in and read the, the notes or the guest book and it's, you know, people make, I'm going to go home and start a garden, or I'm going to, you know, pursue my dreams of farming that I never thought, or this, just having this time has allowed me to re-engage things. And I think just that pause in the natural world is, is undervalued and, uh, and of great need. Um, so that, that's, that, that's sort of where all this wraps up into, furthering sort of the the cause and interest that got us here to begin with. Wow, Jake, congratulations um, on making your farm successful and reaching year six and seven, because I have no experience farming myself, but I've heard of a, a lot of other people's story and uh, it takes a lot of bravery to do what you did. And I think it's, it's so inspiring. 
And like what you were saying, I do think that a lot of people are suffering from a disconnect. Like we aren't connected to our food or where it comes from. We're becoming disconnected from each other. And I mean, loneliness is a, a huge factor in um, disease and connection can lead to more health. So I really love what you're doing. And I was just thinking about this book that I recently read. Uh, have you read Water in Plain Sight by Judith Schwartz? No, but it's on my list. It's funny you mentioned Okay, that. yeah, because your, your story about all the wells drying up, <laughs> mm-hmm. it lends perfectly into that book. Um, she talks about like collecting dew in West Texas and um, creative ways to solve this water crisis because we don't really think about the water or the soil when we think of farming because we just see what's growing above ground. Um, mm-hmm. So is there anything specifically on your farm that you're doing to either capture the water to hopefully not have the well dry out again? <laughs> or mm-hmm. um, how do you also focus on the soil? So the below ground things that people don't really pay attention to as much. Such an insightful question. And um, I think hailing from drought country lends a particular le- <laughs> viewpoint um, that you only get from having water scarcity. Many folks that have lived out here their whole life have not experienced that. And I'll say that understandably take it for granted. You don't see a lot of rainwater catchment. You don't see, you know, you hear jokes about the rain or complaining about the rain. You, you'll never hear us, maybe my wife sometimes, but it's fair, <laughs> complain or whine about the, 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 water, the free water falling from the sky when you've experienced the opposite you realize it's tied to fecundity and the, the type of food systems that naturally occur here. In our forest, our, our girls, we have a, a seven and a five-year-old and they know the forest like the back of their hand. They know the food and medicine that grows there. And I, I can't put a value on that. It's, it's in, invaluable to, to have that connection that really starts with that water and the availability of water. So as far as practices, I would say, yes, uh, we put it not only in what we can drive in catchment systems, but really what we're seeing in the Northwest is a a climate modeling trend towards a, a more Mediterranean type scenario where we have more more precipitation in our wet season and longer, what we're experiencing now, longer drought and heat periods. So the question becomes, how do we extend those that, fortunately we do have that rainy season, how do we extend that resource into our our drier periods? Um, And that's cisterns, that's, um, you know, the three S's uh, that they, um, practice in permaculture, which is with water, is slow it, spread it, and sink it. Um, so uh, that becomes particularly important during our rainy season as far as it uh, recharging our aquifer properly. Um, we do have two wells on the property, but we're very cognizant of that natural space. We leave a lot of undeveloped forest around. Um, to, to serve in that function of, of water absorption. And uh, that's also building in swales and using natural swales um, to, uh, to, again, capture as much water as possible 
and and have it penetrating the ground. We also practice no-till agriculture, which helps considerably with retention of water during during the heat, like we're seeing now. Uh, we have a rule to not leave exposed soil. Nature abhors a vacuum, as we know, which means if you don't want weeds and you don't want to be fighting as much, you know allowing that soil to remain as structurally intact as possible. And, you know, this isn't a dogmatic statement about tilling. We've done it before, or, you know, it's, and we have many farm friends that do it, but we sure are happy to have not done it here. And we're seeing the benefits of that. It takes a considerable amount of several centuries to get the stratification that we see in soil. And it can be overturned very quickly with a machine. You get a sugar rush out of that and you get a good, a good yield for a, a number of years after, but then, then the battle starts, then the fight starts and the supplementation and, you know, it's maybe oversimplifying it, but if you look at a forest, no one's bringing in supplements to that. There isn't compost being delivered. It is sustaining itself through that process and by mimicking the forest, um, in a lot of ways, uh, we can reduce the amount of inputs that, that we're needing to put in and the, the amount of uh, pesticides and or organic pesticides and herbicides we might otherwise have to apply by leaving a lot of natural areas and beneficial uh, habitat for beneficial insects and minimizing disturbance of that soil. I, I knew it on paper to be to feel the right way, but then practicing it has only amplified my feelings about that and seeing the results. And we're starting to see that in a lot of farms going the other directions towards no-till, which is quite difficult to go the other. Once you've been in a tilling practice, it takes a lot of work to go backwards. And I, I admire that, uh, that effort. So that's a long answer, but all those things add to retaining moisture in the soil. Also, um, silvopasturing and uh, the integration of uh, intercropping uh, to where we have orchard trees uh, in the pasture areas, where we have um, integrated shade trees and um, things that reduce uh, and slow down evaporation um, and create uh, cool cooling areas for these intense periods. And I think we kind of have to almost build around these intense periods. You know, maybe it's a month or two, but that's really where things matter. Um, and, and where you're, if you haven't done that, where you can really incur the most damage very quickly. Um, and I think as we move into accelerating climate trends, that planned resiliency and planned adaptation becomes very important. So it means planting a couple zones ahead. We've got plants that aren't supposed to grow out here in areas that may not make it, but are doing pretty well now. And I think that that is, I, I lean towards innovation. I love innovation. I love, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but I'm a kind of a social entrepreneur, I guess, because it's not necessarily the money that drives me, but I love that spirit of what if we try this? What if, and I think there's a, as challenging as everything is right now, I think there's a real opportunity for people to work in this space 
in with innovation and development and trying new things like that and that that area really excites me is like we've got this problem we've got this big challenge let's put our minds to it and experiment and i i love offering our space for that sort of open space innovation if someone's got an idea they don't have land i I'm, i love talking with them. we have somebody you know that hey i've got this culinary mushroom idea that i'd like to utilize this log waste to try well come try it let's let's work with it and i think that there's a lot of opportunity around that particularly with resource limitations around water and the types of things like that that's a very long answer but hopefully it touches on some of your question no that definitely does and that's so interesting and i recently heard that we lose one soccer field of dirt of topsoil every five seconds in the world and so we are actively losing topsoil and all of these innovations that you were talking about can help both trap the water and also prevent the soil from eroding. So I think that's so cool. And you're talking about a bunch of different things that some that I've heard of, and I've tried to learn more about agriculture, but obviously I'm very new. (laughs) And so some of the things that you were talking about was uh, food forests. And how did you learn about all these things? Where can people go for resources to learn how to do their own uh, regenerative agriculture? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Also, um, there is, I'm happy to say there's a, a surge of interest around this. There's been some, you know, some films that have made it into the mainstream uh, sort of Netflix world, which some, you know, some of the hardcore people are like, oh, well, that's, I think it's great because it's, bring, you know, whether it's uh, the biggest little farm, which got, I don't know if you've seen that, uh, and then um, Kiss the Ground, which came out. And there's a few of these that, you know, aren't perfect, but they're wonderful. And they allow people to connect with the concepts. Uh, I thought Biggest Little Farm did a great job of talking about how these notions fit together in a very accessible way, because we can end up throwing a bunch of lexicon out and eyes glaze over and we lose that opportunity. Um, but there is a lot of, uh, of, of, existing knowledge around this and some of these are the old ways you know it's not some of it is you know that expression if sometimes the the next step forward is 180 degrees behind you <laughs> towards progress or whatever and it's something like that where some of these are are re-implementing practices that have been around a very long time that have phased out with the industrial agriculture quote quote unquote revolution I think we're, we're experiencing the costs of that. Food is cheaper, but at what cost, right? And that, I, think the, I think this notion of distributed production closer to communities is getting increasing attention. So I, it depends on how people learn. I learn by doing. So I think programs like uh, the WOLF program, the volunteering on organic farms, we are huge advocates of that program. We've We've had a lot of folks come through with that. One of the biggest compliments both ways is they'll often come for a week or a month and end up, we've had some stay for multiple years and they become part of the family, so to speak. And that's really beautiful and awesome way to learn. There's, it's sort of like learning a language, right? If you, you can do, what is it called? Rosetta Stone and learn a language, and <laughs> go through the, you know, the courses or let's say you're learning Spanish, or you can drop into Mexico, Mexico City and be uncomfortable and learn 
an order of magnitude faster. I feel like this type of thing is that in a way. It doesn't discount the value of reading and doing all that. But it's, I think there's nothing beats just getting in there and running into problems and solving them. And there's a lot of programs that allow folks to do that with minimal risk. I would not recommend people just dive into to buying a farm. And uh, although, unless you've got a lot, you got a lot of run, runway financially and a lot of grit, uh, I say go for it. Otherwise, spend some time running a farm, volunteering on a farm uh, that, that shares the values you're interested in. There's nothing beats that experience and it, you get to make mistakes for free or on somebody else's time, I should say. <laughs> so, Jake, you've talked about a fully functioning regenerative farm taking about six to seven years to realize. This was well documented and also consistent with the Biggest Little Farm documentary. So this not only takes perseverance, but also takes financial resources. Are there financial resources available to people who are just getting started? Uh, great question. And yes and yes, I would say the this is where the innovation of the model itself is important. And there's not one answer to this. But I think going in and saying we're only going to farm, we're just going to do a farm, and this is how we're going to make our living. I put it akin to like filling a lake, right? Don't just use two conduits or two two uh, ditches to fill it use a hundred hoses uh and and some of those will dry up some won't work and so that means being you know if you've got a day gig particularly in a technological world someone can code on the side like do it you know and then uh, like bring you know don't just put all your eggs in a blank piece of land i gotta figure this out to make it work uh, or you know like we uh, we're introverts. We would have happily just had the 24 acres to ourselves, but we had this opportunity to have rental property, a small, you know, a uh, small footprint. Uh, there's a cabin on the other, on the other side and, you know, allowing the land to earn itself while we're building it out in phases. Right. And, and just knowing that long-term it's going to, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it can be as simple as someone selling selling firewood at three hundred dollars a cord on the side, and just hus side hustles, right? Um, but but integrate them into the model. Chickens yield year one. Hey, everybody eats eggs. I mean, those are so just just thinking about it in that in that way. So when I say like year six or seven, I, what I'm really saying is that's when it stop. It starts to feel like you're not dog paddling every day you know yeah. we we were in I loved every aspect of it we also had two children two babies mm -hmm. which starting a farm and having a baby in the same year I would say is not advisable but, <laughs> but if, if you can do it you know it's great so so we did that so so a lot of that well your baby is going to be so healthy with all the soil around them you know we could talk for hours on that I'm sure you've read this the book I just finished been around a little bit it's called let them eat dirt uh if you haven't you, you would you might enjoy it it's a compilation of uh research of exactly what you're talking about of that importance for young immune systems to be exposed to the natural world and be challenged uh, our kids never get sick to your point and that they've been playing around with compost since they were two you know <laughs> um and i think that that 
inner biome. I think this is related to the profession you're heading towards. That inner biome is connected to the outer biome. And so, you know, the you are what you eat becomes even more literal uh, as it relates to the little critters that we rely on inside of us, which relates to the health of the soil. So Kathy, to your question is, it can be done. It's no scarier to me. It, it, it's scarier to me to have a, I, I don't say this disparagingly, but to rely on a cubicle job and a 401k for your future. That's scarier to me than to have uh, two water wells, healthy soil, and, and having to figure it out. Everybody's wired differently and wants different things, but pe some people look at what we did and say, how can you take that risk? How did you do that? Well, because the alternative to me is way riskier and way scarier. Um, so, uh, so it's all perspective, right? And, and where you see trends going and where you see kind of the, the future going. I never, we never build anything off of fear, you know? So we can understand the science of climate modeling and look at it clear with clear eyes and say, okay, well, this would make sense to do this, and this would make sense to do that. And at a minimum, uh, you've only become more resilient. At a, at a, in a worst case, you've built in systems that allow real security. And I think the pandemic sort of pointed that out, that some of the droughts and natural weather events that we're seeing lay that to bear. I see very little downside to operating that way, at least from my perspective. That's great. And then also, I think there are some resources, even in the state of Washington, that you helped, in fact, usher through. Farm and Fields uh, program uh, in the state of Washington. It was kind of the first of its kind to really incentivize these practices, regenerative practices, and create this is, it's in its first year. It just, it just passed last year. So, but I'm still very excited about it. It's potential. So I'd call it a pilot, but the notion would be that is, the notion is that farms, small farms can apply at the regional level for grants uh, for specific implementation of some of these regenerative practices. So whether it's a silvopasturing or uh, hedgerows or no-till practices, or um, you know things that that also serve in carbon sequestration. They serve like a, a sort of a triple bottom line kind of thing, where uh, it helps with the efficiency of farming, it helps preserve soil, reduce water usage, all of those things. But it also happens to sequester carbon, um, and those are that's a great way to go at some of this stuff. I think that we're going to see more of that. Uh, in fact, some of the I'll just call it the carbon interest. Uh, well, what should I say? Carbon sequestration interest folks working on that have really turned to agriculture as a, a, less, um, a less charged, politically charged uh, avenue to, to go after some of these things and do it in a way that helps strengthen local food systems. So you create enough, enough positives that the, the carbon sequestration almost becomes a byproduct uh, and which is really awesome. And um, I think a really, and incentive based. So uh, that's an exciting program. I hope to see other states do that. And I hope, you know, ours will uh, 
expand right now it's it's small but uh, so yes there are incentives and then you know don't you know when folks are if folks are considering going this direction i would say two things one um don't think you need you know we've got 24 acres but you can do a lot with one acre if your model's right and um so sometimes people are like well i can never afford or i can never do and there's a lot of reasons why i can't but especially as a first especially if you're doing some of these practices you can do a lot with a lot less space um and then make sure the community that you're uh near or operating in has a sort of a positive connection to local food system um we happen to live on the island we have a very supportive community that loves local supporting local food uh so that's sort of like a built-in demand you know if you build it they will come kind of thing that gives those two things i think uh you know would have been a if i'm giving advice to myself going back it would be that and you know uh put your risk in perspective so you know, what may come up as fear as, oh my gosh, it's risky. How can I, what am I going to do about this and that? Well, put it in the context of everything else and try to step out of what you, you're operating in because that feels that, you know, quote unquote normal, that normal can shift very quickly. And we've seen that. So, so put that, what you're feeling as fear of a risk in, in bigger perspective. Uh, and I think that that is a really helpful way to like take away some of the fear of it's the same fear that might come up in starting a business or anything. You've got to be willing to take those steps. But I think increasingly it becomes easier when you put the risk in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that completely, especially this past year. We've recognized that it can be risky, like you were saying, to start a desk job. And for me, it's risky to not have a sustainable source of food <laughs> like all yeah. of the in all of the stores in the cities everything was uh being sold out and if you don't have food that you make yourself it's kind of scary <laughs> oh oh when they when you know when it, you're at like you're so right because like it was the first time i think people i'm being a little hyperbolic but that people realize that food doesn't grow on costco shelves like when it's when it's uh when it's not there it's a feeling that I think most folks, most modern American folks have not experienced and don't want to experience again. But, you know, we had people just coming up to the farm just like, Hey, they're out of chicken or whatever. And I think it did give a little glimpse of the fragility of the current system that we call normal, normal and secure you know, that's not a chicken little statement or anything. It's just the reality of a global system that yeah. despite its apparent robustness is very fragile in a lot of ways. And um, I had a, an old guy in Texas, I think his name was Stan. He was approaching 90 and he had this wonderful farm and it really had a lot of like permaculture regenerative influence but I don't think he would have called it that he would have just called it old style farming and I just was asking this is when I you know I didn't grow up on a farm I had to learn all this was like I had to become bilingual to carry the metaphor later in life and so I was asking a bunch of questions just how did you do what do you do you know how did you get this and 
I just remember this so clearly. It's one of these like old man per- pearls of wisdom, you know, or we you know elderly people can just give you like a pearl statement that you unpack later. Um, uh, he was like, well, Jake, you know, one day I realized I'm, I'm doing a Texas accent now because he was saying one day I realized that, uh, that if I can't look out my window and see my family and my food, that I get a little bit fearful and I don't make good decisions when I'm fearful. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> I, wow. I, I was like, that's it. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of, so then you were fixing to start a farm. <laughs> yeah, fixing to say, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's how we do it. Uh, yeah. Um, and I also think that not only do we, I mean, obviously not everyone's going to start growing their own food, but just the first step is to be able to support, support local farmers and to bring local agriculture back. Because I think that that also helps create more stability than the fragility Absolutely. of the global system. Absolutely. The, the, the best resilience is the quilt, the quilt of community, you know, that patchwork quilt. And it's not, it's not everybody being a farmer it's exactly what you're saying it's people playing various roles in in that that system that is healthy it has to be a healthy system it can't even just be one health in fact you know without healthy natural infrastructure the farms aren't healthy they don't have the the beneficial insects they need um you know so so everything is connected in that way and then the financial component is you don't have to necessarily be a farmer. You can be a part of a resilient system by finding a niche that, that helps Mm -hmm. in that, you know, Um, and there's a million different ways at that. And when you start to see the start to reinvent or reconnect to localized systems, distributed generation of food and energy and water rather than centralized that we've grown up to think of as the model decentralized, there are a plethora of opportunities for innovation, jobs, income uh, around this. And it's not just a novel idea. They're, these niches have value. And so for the entrepreneur types or people that are in a transition and have ideas, this is a space that's just ripe for innovation and, and development. And um, I think that gets under discussed as well. I love that. In fact, this podcast, my, well, I was attempting to find sort of that connection between ecological, economic, and human health aspects as it relates to the climate solutions that we're discussing. And you've done a great job talking about the economic aspect of, or benefits, let's say, of local distributed sustainable food systems. The, the one thing I'd love for you to expand upon a little, can you talk more about the carbon sequestration and carbon storage capacity of regenerative farming and how, how regenerative agriculture works and why it's better than the conventional way of farming? Sure. And I do want to take a step back and just thank you for creating this format and forum. I think you're your timing is really good. I think people are thirsty for this and I, I think you're doing a really great job. Uh, I just appreciate that you're uh, catalyzing these conversations. As, Thank you. As far as uh, the carbon aspect, I would start with inputs uh, and the level of de- the demand for fossilized carbon inputs, fossilized energy inputs in the 
I don't want to call it the traditional agriculture, I'll call it the industrial agriculture model. They're, they're heavily, heavily dependent on uh, fossilized fuel, not just in the, the practices, but in the inputs of fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, all of that is a negative carbon flow. So I, I don't want to just start with the positive carbon flow because it's all an energy balance, right? So, so we're not just, it would miss the point if we were sequestering carbon, but our practices were blowing, blowing out 10 times the amount of carbon that we need, right? So, uh, so that's- Yeah, good point. So, so yeah, I always start with like, okay, well, are we tilling? Okay, what are we using? What are, you know, all of those things. Um, then there's the point of, of sequestration, which is without getting into too much into organic chemistry, we're talking about binding carbon in a form that stays in the ground in, a, in an inert way, right? So there's active bi biological carbon that's moving around and through, and then there's uh, carbon that remains in a, a sequestered state for a long period of time. So the, the most sort of striking example that people can picture is, you know, biochar, like almost a charcoal, right? That's, that's uh, and, and biochar is a, a wonderful soil amendment that has so many benefits. And it's a great way to sequester carbon on a small scale in, in a way that, that helps improve the health of the soil. I don't know if you've covered this, but that's something that's done through a process called pyrolysis, which is sounds fancy, but it's pretty simple. It's burning in the absence of oxygen to create uh, burning biomass in the absence of. So we have a lot of taking a sidestep here to say part of what we do is looking at if a listener or somebody is looking at a site to develop a regenerative agriculture type situation, they'll look at, well, what, what resources do I have here? What, what, is, what is naturally being produced? You know, obviously we went after water. We've got that. That's a key ingredient to life. But we also have a lot of lignin, a lot of biomass, right? So that's, that's part of benefit of, we were drawn to this agroforestry model. Okay, so we have a lot of, of lignin and biomass. How can we utilize that? So it's thinking through that process, not only for building materials and that type of thing, as we have a lot of wind felled trees, but it's also employing processes like huga culture, which is a, a type of farming that utilizes biomass. It's really effective in areas that have, uh, that are drought prone and high heat to retaining moisture. Picture in a very um, overly simplified form, uh, a stack of logs and trees that are buried into the ground uh, with layered soil above that so that you create these almost this airy um, moisture laden pocket of, of degrading biomass that is just alive and crawling with microbes and worms and all of that and then planting into that. So this is a you know, the technique developed a long time ago, obviously in Germany, hygge culture being the, being the word, but but those types of things, uh, uh, you know, you look at the resources you have that your where your fecundity is and build out from that. Uh, it it applies to energy too. You know, we have 
uh, the ability to generate electricity through through that pyrolysis process. If you've got a lot of bound biomass, you can generate electricity through that. All that to say is that when you apply these things, also allowing a forest to be a forest, we don't have to develop everything. Uh, in fact, we benefit by leaving these, I'll just call them wild areas. Uh, those systems are working in a way that benefits uh, what you're trying to do. So let them do that. Don't, don't get in the mentality that you have to clear it and then cut a square to grow something. It's already producing fertilizer. It's producing food. It's producing all kinds of beneficial insects, windbreaks, um, all of these things that are, aren't just like right in front of you, but are happening. Uh, it's creating compost constantly. We can harvest compost mm -hmm. and organic matter from the forest and utilize it. And it will grow without your help, <laughs> which is if you're, if you're working the land for a living, you start to appreciate that. Uh, you can check in on it instead of having to actively manage everything. So some of it honestly is letting go of this notion of control <laughs> that, that I've it, it, like, this won't happen unless I cut out this square and clear everything from it that you, I actually cringe when I go by a field and it's completely open without a single thing growing in it. That, that is, mm -hmm. uh, uh, gives me anxiety because not mm -hmm. only are you losing soil, is it exposed? But again, nature does not like a vacuum. And so you're just creating a scenario where you've got to fight. And farming is hard, hard enough. Why do we want to fight the system around us to, uh, you know, you should have living things that you're not eating growing around in your garden. We have living paths that have, that people would call weeds, right? A weed is just a plant in a place you don't want it, um, uh, but but they can be part of the solution if you manage all that and 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 get past this notion that it's got to be this sterile field only growing this thing. That that is going to lead to a very exhausting machine-driven scenario, which is you know I mean I'm not again people can make their choices. I'm just saying it's not for not for us. Um, all of these practices combined, uh, when done right, uh, exemplify um, what Amanda was saying about a, a healthy soil system. A healthy soil system will sequester carbon on its own. A lot of that's driven by microbial activity and a healthy root system. When you turn all that up with a machine, you're turning up those processes some of which we don't, we're just beginning to understand when it comes to mycelial networks and the role of fungi in the soil system. If I could go back into academia, I would become a mycologist because I find it fascinating how little we know about what's going on there and how much potential there is in these mycelial networks and forests and soil. And when you don't disturb that, how, how the carbon sequestration and the energy balance improves considerably because you're letting these systems work with you uh, rather than turning them over and inventing your own. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for um, connecting all the dots. That was really a great explanation. I appreciate you doing that. So 
I think that I could ask you questions for four more hours, but I know you don't have that kind of time. And <laughs> I uh, wanted to finish this up with one last question that I ask all my guests. And that is, since this is a locally focused podcast, can you recommend one or two key things, let's say policy changes that our leaders can implement at a local level to support the growth of sustainable agriculture and, and uh, practices you have? Oh, what a great question to end with. Well, it's no secret that I've been advocating quite a bit for reform of our forestry practices on the islands. This, we have a long history, not only on the island, but in the state of um, being a forestry-driven, timber-driven economy. Mm -hmm. That was the 20th century. Whidbey Island is not a timber-driven economy, necessarily. That's not to say managing the forests and selective harvests aren't important. They are. Um, I'm an advocate. You know, this isn't a, a dogmatic statement about any of that. But it is a good opportunity for us to reevaluate or to give value to the ecosystem services that forests provide being more than just board feet and timber. That's a very old way of thinking. And so we're in the process of updating that for lack of a better word, but it, it's a legacy type scenario and there's a lot of viewpoints, but when you boil it down, when you start to put going back to the economics, which I, I like that you focus on um, both what's wrong with them and what can improve, uh, when you start to put real values towards stormwater mitigation, uh, you know, beneficial insects, raptor habitat for uh, disease and rodent control, wind buffering, cooling effects, carbon sequestration, you just go down the line, the number gets really big, really fast. And there's a whole body of work being done on this that's catching up. And so now it's policymakers' turn to start absorbing this and reevaluate, okay, if we turn this forest into into lumber, uh, it's X valued public benefit. If we allow it to be a forest or a managed benefit, it has Y value to, to the, the public. And especially living on an island, we are a sensitive ecosystem in a lot of ways. So taking the, the notions of mainland forestry, which again, I'm not even making a statement on, the millions of acres of managed forests are probably in better shape than the the pocket clear cuts that are being that are often being mismanaged on our island, uh, not by foresters, by fly-by-night loggers and off-island developers that that don't have any interest in the forest health. They're mainly to convert it uh, out of working forests. So, ironically, I found myself uh, aligned more with the. Uh, Department of Natural Resources and these bodies that are advocate for keeping working forests forests rather than converting them to development. We have intense development pressures right now. And um, I would rather have a managed forest than to see them flip out of designated forests into a storage building facility, which we see a lot of it, for example. I think that we need to really take a hard look at all of that and decide what direction we want to head from a policy perspective. There's a ripe opportunity to do that. I encourage everybody to contact their county commissioners and get involved uh, with this conversation. We do have some leadership happening at that level, have some good conversations, some pro so a lot of potential for progress, 
but it's really going to be driven by people being involved in their local government. And if you're going to live here for any meaningful amount of time, especially if you have kids, I think what we do in the next couple of years is really going to define what this island looks like over the next decade and whether we look more like Bainbridge or whether we look, you know, uh, maintain the rural and natural character that people come to visit would be island uh, for. So just on the heels of that point, again, apologize for the long answer, but it's an important one is also what if you want a healthy local food system, you also want healthy natural infrastructure. So you can't have one without the other. So you can't be, you know, let's log everything and turn them into Best Buy and Wingstop, which, you know, so I get that some people want that. But then having a local, having the, the, the things we need to grow healthy food and community becomes more difficult and you challenge. So it, it's bigger. It's a big question. Um, and that's, that's an area of work. I'll just leave that one on the table because that's probably the most pertinent uh, and it's connected, honestly, to the uh, to also climate resiliency. You know, as we look at models going forward, we know that we're going to see or continue to see more severity in the events. Right. We can't say what and when. But one thing we know with climate is that we can say it's going to be more intense and more acute. Uh, so whether that's a drought or whether it's a rain. Uh, that's the way I like to look at the, uh, or, you know, the body of thought around this. Forests are great buffers for that. Having, having strong natural infrastructure is some of our best insurance policy for uh, this, these increasingly severe weather events. Having less of them makes us more vulnerable and increases the risk, uh, whether it's flooding or whether it's aquifer recharge all of those benefit by having a healthy natural infrastructure. So I think reframing the conversation, you know, we have decades of legacy conversations of loggers versus environmentalists and all that. I'm not interested in that, the arguments of the past. Let's reframe this discussion in a really clear-eyed way. And I think that when you do that, you, you find that, that uh, it really becomes almost a political and, is, and is, a, is a really great case study as an island. It really just makes everything that much more apparent. Thank you so much for leading the way on this really important topic and also for showing community how they can engage with their local government. I really appreciate your, the work you've been doing. I think that's such an important message too and something that's been a theme throughout this conversation is we've become a very globalized country. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it's easy to get caught up in, in big problems that are happening. Like climate change seems huge. And to my generation, everyone wants to work on it. But it seems like these huge tasks that you just can't swallow on your own. And so going to the local government is great advice. And then also supporting your local food system. So we need to go from global to smaller impacts locally, mm-hmm. which is why I'm so happy that my mom started this podcast. I think that it was a great idea because people do want to make a change, but we don't really know where to start. Yes. And back to that notion of distributed generation, whether it's energy, food, water, processing waste. How about distributed democracy, right? Distributed (laughs) generation of, of active democracy is the same notion. Do it where you are, do it, um, 
you know, with a, get, get a handful of your friends involved. It does take time and persistence, but you actually can move things. Yeah. I think Jake, I'll be, when I, when I um, am older and 90 or so, I'll be talking about the words of wisdom that I heard from Jake on my podcast today, like your stand oh. from Texas. So <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your experience and your wisdom. And I feel like that you found your way to Woodby Island. Thanks for well, all your time. Likewise to you. And you've, you've clearly passed your ethic on to your uh, to your uh, daughter and it's wonderful you make a great uh, cast team by the way you're just very insightful questions i could talk for a lot longer because of the the nature of your questions and conversation so i really appreciate it and uh, we'll see you on the farm next time you're down on the on the south end uh, please feel free to to stop in i'd love to show you around Thank you for listening to the Local Climate Solutions Podcast. Information on how to connect with our guest can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please share with your friends and neighbors. And if you have ideas for people you would like to hear interviewed, please send me an email. The intent for this podcast is to learn from local leaders in Island County, Washington, who are working to reduce climate change and build community resilience. My hope is that other people take this idea and implement it in their own community with their own style. Please feel free to reach out if you would like support.